0: Good morning. You made it. Nice job. Uh, if you have a Bible, please join me in John 17. If you don't have one, we'd love to get one into your hands. Uh, raise your hand and we'll get one to you soon. And while you're turning to join me in John 17, I have three announcements. Number one. We are no longer using those prepackaged communion wafer deals for communion. Praise the Lord! Uh, so, what that means is we are rebooting, passing the tray um, after the sermon. And so, just just so you're aware, give grace to the ushers as they come and figure out how to pass trays. And you're going to see that the communion elements come double cupped, and you can just take one juice and cracker. The second announcement is that uh, last fall's Imago Christi class, the biblical anthropology class I was teaching on Wednesdays, is scheduled to reboot this coming Wednesday night for part two, so please come on out at 6.15. However, it's supposed to snow 13 inches, so it's probably canceled. (laughs) So come next week. Related to that, third and final announcement is this. We are coming up with a snow day protocol. It's snowing. We need a protocol. Uh, And what the protocol is going to be is that uh, we'll make an announcement to you later on about this as the elders work it out. But basically, sometime early in the week, when we know there's going to be a big storm that lands just like this one or the previous one, We will put out an announcement so that you are alerted. We're going to put it on Facebook, on the website, and then email everybody who's connected with our church email to let you know, usually probably by 5 p.m. on Saturday, whether or not we're going to have two or one service. So we'll continue to have services, but it doesn't make sense to have two services when both services can fit in one service. And we want to serve those who serve us by plowing and sweeping and shoveling and more, so we'll just go down to one service. So uh, we didn't want to spring something on you last night at five because we know it'd be hard to get a hold of people, so moving forward we will have a protocol, which means we're going to try to enact that for this coming Wednesday. So if class is canceled this Wednesday, we will put it on Facebook and send out an email and more. So if you're not receiving our emails or my newsletter each week, you can use one of the cards in the seat in front of you and put it in the offering box uh, before you leave announcements done. We are in John 17, and we're continuing to follow Jesus together as a church family. If you're taking notes, the subtitle of the message this morning is this, grow, guard, and go in gospel unity. Grow, guard, and go in gospel unity. I'm going to read Our text is small, verses 20 to 23. I'm going to read these four verses, pray, and we'll jump right into the sermon this morning. John 17, Jesus is offering his high priestly prayer to the Father. And picking up in verse 20, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Well, that's Christ's prayer. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we've once again, over these many weeks, have, have listened in on Jesus as he has prayed to you on behalf of the apostles and his whole church. And Lord, our desire is to agree with Jesus and ask you, Father, to answer his prayer, which you have and continue to do across these two millennia since he rose into heaven. Oh, Father, Jesus's words here are simple, but they are deep, they are complex and hard for us to understand. And so we appeal to you that by your spirit you would give us understanding according to your word. To understand what Jesus intends for our lives as a church. And all more that you'd have to reveal to us this morning. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, there's a question that uh, lingers over the text for us this morning, and it's this. What is Jesus's intended goal for you in this world? That, that's a big question, admittedly. And there's actually quite a few passages we could go to to texture that out. But what Jesus prays here reveals to us that Jesus has... An intended goal for you in this world, and I when I ask that question what you think that is i'm not asking you about uh, the particulars and circumstances and gifting of your unique life that's unique to you I'm talking about the partic- I'm talking about what's underneath what's underneath the particulars and circumstances of your life that Jesus intends for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad that you're here. And I can tell you that Jesus calls you this morning to believe and to turn from your sins and to follow him. That's certainly his immediate goal for you this morning. But let's say we all do believe in Jesus. What's next? The answer is yes, there is more, a lot more. Jesus has goals for you. And in our text this morning... As he continues to pray to the Father, Jesus reveals his foundational intentions for your life. Not that you make it up as you go or you figure it out as you go. He actually lays out right here. We discern what Jesus wants for your life and our life together from his words. As he prays this prayer, almost bringing it to a close and prepares to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and then later to the cross. Now, as I prayed a moment ago, you hear these words and the grammar is very simple. The words themselves uh, aren't hard to define. But what Jesus says is very complex. And on top of that, the versification, the verses in our Bibles, those aren't inspired. Those were added way later to the Bible. And one Issue that comes up in these four verses, verses 20 to 23, is that the way the verses are broken can make it difficult to follow what Jesus is saying. He's very repetitive, seems very circular. So, what is he doing? So, we have a slide, and here it is. This slide is an attempt to break down, and first service was taking a lot of pictures of this. It might help you. So, if you want to take a picture, take a picture of the screen. This is meant to help us understand the flow of Jesus' thought. And so, I, the verses are still there, but I put A, B, C for you to see this flow. You heard me emphasize the phrase, so that. In these four verses, Jesus says, so that, six times. And just like in the Greek, and same with English... When someone says that or so that, they're implying a a purpose or an intended result. So what happens is verse 20, there's an A by that, and then 21 has a B, and then there's a C right here in the middle of verse 20, or the end of verse 21, Then you have another A, B, C. You can see the A, B, C. And the outline of our sermon follows that ABC format. Isn't that amazingly wonderful? (laughs) This is why this is important. In the first point, we're going to group the A's together. In the second point, we're going to group the B's together. And in the third point, we're grouping the C's together. Why? Because Jesus is saying almost the exact same thing across these four verses. You could lay these, these uh, two sections on top of each other, and it's the same thing. So you could have a six-point sermon or a three-point sermon. We're going with three, praise the Lord. But the reason it's indented like this is it shows that because of A, Jesus intends B. And because of B, Jesus intends C. No A, then no B, then no C. And that's the outline of the sermon this morning. So here we go. Ready? Three points. What is Jesus praying for us in these passages? Point number one, we're going to see in the A group Gospel unity is built by Jesus' word and glory, so grow in it. Next, B. Gospel unity mirrors life in the Trinity, so guard it. And then we'll close our time with that third point that Jesus wants us to reach. Gospel unity is a witness to the world, so go in it. So that's why the sermon is called Grow, Guard, and Go in Gospel Unity. So point number one, let's jump in gospel unity is built by jesus's word and glory so grow in it now don't lose sight of this everything in this first point is the basis that sets us up for the second point so that we can have the third point there's the logical flow look at verse 20 and verse 22 here is the setup First, Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask for these only, he's looking at the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Next, in verse 22, the mirrored idea, Jesus prays this mysterious statement, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. These two statements are going to lead to the middle statement about unity, which leads to the third statement about mission. What's going on here? Jesus's prayer, beginning in verse 20, takes a remarkable turn. Now, we have seen that beginning back in John 13, when this upper room began, Jesus is there with the 12 apostles. And then later, chapter 13, Judas leaves to go betray Jesus, so it's the 11, and Jesus has been talking to the 11 for these past chapters, and now he's praying for them, and us by extension, but in verse 20, something happens. In verse 20, Jesus changes, and he prays for you. He prays for you. Did you hear it? I don't ask for these, the 11 only, but also for all those... Who will believe in me through their word? what this means is that Jesus is not merely hoping or wishing the gospel will prevail. Jesus is not wondering if his death and resurrection will actually be fruitful. in verse 20 when he prays for those who believe for their word uh, through their word, Jesus is not he didn't die for the possibility That some people might get saved. Jesus died for the actuality that specific people will get saved. Jesus is not praying with his fingers crossed. Instead, Jesus knows that the gospel will prevail for those whom he died. In other words, right here, verse 20, in these very words, he prays for you by name. Now, I know your name. I don't see Steve right there in verse 20. But I know that if Jesus had mentioned us all by name, there wouldn't be enough pages of scripture to fill all the names of the church for whom Christ has died. Jesus is praying by name for you in his mind. And now, of course, as he prays for us by name, here's what's remarkable. We know where he's going. In the next point, he's going to be praying for the unity of the church which means here in this first point he's not just praying for us individually but Jesus knows and is praying for each local gospel church to ever exist so in his heart and mind as he prays he's praying for the your home church that you came from to go to college here Jesus is praying for For grace and flag Bible and Calvary and Church of the Resurrection. He's he is praying for Flagstaff, Christian Fellowship, and all the saints that have belonged to this church for the nearly one hundred years that we have existed. Jesus is praying for us on and on. And what does Jesus pray? Well, Jesus' prayer here is the setup. He's returning to themes that we've heard over and over again. In this upper room, final farewell discourse, Jesus returns to the themes of unity and mission. So here in this first point, we hear Jesus praying and implying how unity is going to happen. So I asked at the beginning, what is Jesus' intended goal for you in your life? These bedrock goals of belief in Jesus, unity and mission... He's now going to reveal to us how unity and mission is achieved and built in the local church. And he tells us in verse 20 and in verse 22, two things. Unity and mission are achieved through the word and glory. So let's focus on the word. Don't lose sight of the chain implied in verse 20. Look again at verse 20. I don't ask for these only, the eleven, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, you and I. If we broaden our perspective back out to this whole upper room discourse, we remember that Jesus says just a few verses earlier that he didn't say his own words, that Jesus spoke only the words the Father gave him. So there's a chain. The Father gives the word to jesus jesus gives the word by the spirit to the apostles and through the apostles that word spreads across centuries and millennia to you and i sitting here right now and then that same word that apostolic word goes from us to others and others until christ returns It's the word and we'll see the glory of God and the word that the father gave to the son. Who by the spirit gives to us is centered on. The reality that Jesus is God son in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died in our place for our sins as the innocent one. He was buried and then he rose from the grave three days later and he ascended into heaven. And it's that word that we pass on to others. But it's that word that courses through the veins of this whole book. So we hold the book of the gospel. We read the book of the gospel. We believe the book of the gospel. And Jesus prays in verse 20 for those who believe The Word. You have the Word and you have to believe it. Belief is not merely a feeling, though feelings are involved. Your belief is not a hunch. Your belief is not based on impressions. Your belief is not making up your own ideas or anyone's own made-up ideas. Belief in the Word is inked out on the pages of Scripture. And we are told, who to believe, and what to believe. And so Jesus' prayer here in the beginning, as he's going to think about unity in the church, begins with us believing rightly the word of God, the whole word of God. That we would know Jesus, we would know the triune God through Jesus, personally and truly through the Bible. That's the first building block, the word of God. The word of God will lead us to unity. But next in verse 22, this is a mysterious statement. Look again what he says The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What does that mean? He's not saying that um, we will be glorified in glory. That's true, that will happen. But Jesus is saying that something is taking place now where he has given us his glory. Uh, you can look around. Not too many of us are shining light, light bulbs right now. Some of you have nice complexion and you're shining. But none of us. What does, he, what does he mean when he says that we have his glory right now? Well, we have to remember that in the primary context of the upper room... When Jesus speaks of glory, he's mainly focusing on God's character. Remember, we've, we've looked at this in the past. God's glory is his holiness seen and felt. It's his character seen and experienced. Okay? So if, if glory can be defined the way Jesus uses it here as, as God's holiness, his character seen and felt... What do we know of Jesus? Jesus was and is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the perfect representation of God because he is God. In other words, Jesus is the true image and glory of God. What is God like? What's the father like? Look at Jesus supremely on the cross. That's what God is like. What was it like to experience Jesus? That's why he tells the disciples earlier, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's why in verse 22 here, look at Jesus says. The glory that you, Father, have given to me, I have given to them. So when we become a new creation in Christ, many scholars agree that they think it's best to understand what Jesus says here... is that just as Jesus glorified the Father... by being the perfect image of the Father... we now glorify God by being the image of Jesus. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 8... where the Christian life is described as being... summed up as being conformed to the image of Jesus. In other words, when Jesus says that He's given us His glory... I know it sounds abstract, but it's actually concrete. It means, to use the idea of image and glory interchangeably, it means that your life might be the only Bible that somebody reads. And you might be the only Jesus, so to speak, that somebody interacts with. That's the implication. When he gives us his glory, Jesus was the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and we are being made into the image of Jesus more and more. You see, we are Christ's body on earth. Jesus continues his mission through us now. And so when we interact with each other and unbelieving friends outside these walls, they're supposed to get a better idea of who God is and what God is like by interacting with you. We glorify God and show the glory of God when we image Him, act like Him, with our whole life. So, in that sense, glory and image are interchangeable. I know it's abstract, but again, most scholars agree what Jesus implies here is it's the character of your life and the way that you live. So, what does this mean? Well, remember, Jesus is setting us up in this first point for what follows. Jesus is preparing us now for what's next and what it means to be unified. And Jesus begins here by showing you and me that unity in your marriage, in your household, and in your church. Unity begins by you being full of the word of God, believing the word of God, and then acting out and living out the word of God in your life. In your marriage, your parenting, your friending, your working, and your churching, and more. All of life. And so Jesus is is implying, as he prays to the Father, and we listen on, that we think, yes, Lord. Please do that. And we, we learn elsewhere in Scripture that we have responsibilities to growing in the Word. We have responsibilities to living and walking in the Word. So what this means for you... As you listen on, and if you want this for your life, it means that you need to actively grow in this process. You participate with the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit needs to illuminate the Bible. But if that's your Bible, how is it going to get illuminated? You actually got to open it. and You actually got to put your eyes on it and begin to read it. And you need to listen to it. And as we gather here to listen to it preached and more. We grow as Christians through praying the Word, through our gathered worship and all that we do here on Sundays, through studying the Word, and we do, we grow as Christians by attending to all that Christian fellowship entails. Gospel unity begins by you being built individually by the Word of God and Jesus' glory, His character. And that's why then the... the um, The command of this first point is grow in it. Gospel unity is built by the word and glory. So grow in the word and grow in Christ's character by putting it on. And and that's so that Jesus' prayer can be achieved in us and through us, which leads to the second point. Gospel unity reflects life in the Trinity, so guard it. Gospel unity reflects life in the Trinity, so guard it. Now... This is where we get four of those so that's. Remember that at the beginning? Six times Jesus says so that to give us conclusions. The centerpiece of what Jesus wants is, well, he says beginning in verse 21, so that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So that. They also may be in us. In the back half of verse twenty-two, so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you and me, so that they may become perfectly one. You see how repetitive Jesus is. Uh, your mind kind of spins. I and you, and you and me, and what's going? I mean, it's hard. Well, I. You can't even picture that. But you know what stands out? One. He wants us to be one. He wants us to be one in the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. The Trinity is triune, one God in three persons. And we as a body are to be one. So what's going on here? Gospel unity reflects life in the Trinity. So guard it. Jesus' prayer to the Father Is that the result, you growing in the word by yourself and you acting like Jesus more and more, is not the end of it. It leads to unity. The result of the first point is that it would achieve unity or oneness in the spirit with others. Now, I have to point out the obvious you cannot be unified with yourself there's nothing autonomous in what Jesus prays here you have to have a collection of people together in order for this to be a reality in your life it's impossible for what Jesus prays here in the second point it's impossible for this to be true for of, of any christian who does not live in faithful community with other believers with whom they gather to worship on the Lord's day. This is not about your personal relationship with the Trinity, although you have one. This is about a relationship you have horizontally with other believers to such a degree that when people look, about, look at you and how you relate to your church, they get a better sense of what the Trinity is. That's profound. All of Jesus' language of mutual indwelling, and we've looked at that in weeks past, and oneness is not just something for the new heavens and new earth, because that will happen, but this oneness that we're supposed to have is right now. It began the moment you were born again. So, so listen. Yes, the gospel comes with a slave's towel. We saw that in weeks past. Yes, the gospel comes with a script, a map, and a compass. We saw that last time. But now what we see implied by Jesus here is that the gospel also comes with a family photo album. Do you see that? The gospel comes with a family photo album. When you become a Christian... You don't become a sheep released into the wild for wolves to bite and devour you. The intention of Jesus is that all of his sheep, and he's the good shepherd, is that we would congregate into local sheep pens called local churches. That's what I mean by a family photo album. The family photo album contains the pictures of the people with whom you gather for Lord's Day worship and are in covenant with so you can help them know and follow Jesus, and they can help you know and follow Jesus. It's easy to be unified with your close friends, your friends. Uh, it's maybe a little bit easier, but it's tricky. You can be unified in your household, your marriage and your parenting and your adult kids and your parents and, and more. But Jesus is not talking about your close friends. Jesus is not talking about your household. It's implied. Jesus is talking about his church. And it's the local church. This point. Gospel unity reflects life in the Trinity. So guard it. It's in the life of the local church. Through thick and thin. Easy and difficult. That it can be hard to be unified. And hard might be an understatement. You get a lot of people with a lot of opinions who all come together, all in the middle of our sanctification, all different levels of maturity, different times we get entangled with our own species of sin and more. And in the worst cases, when a local church, to quote Paul from Galatians, bite and devours one another, when a local church falls apart due to scandal and more, when a church falls apart, there is a unique Devastation and the life of those who experience that as well as a gospel maligning witness to a watching world. Jesus prays in verse 23, so that they may become perfectly one word and glory so that you may become perfectly one. Think about what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians four. He's not just talking about our families, our marriages. He's talking about the local church. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all and in all. Why does the Apostle Paul have to tell us that? Why do you think the Apostle Paul has to tell us to be humble and gentle and patient? Why do you think that is? Because we're pretty good at being impatient, not gentle, but rough, and kind of more prideful and selfish than humble and other-oriented. We need to be reminded of that. We all have that in us, beginning with myself. We all have it in us, and yet we need to extend to others... Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And the eagerness. There's not different spirits and different gospels and different bodies. It's one, 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 one. Is all that he says. It's one. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Maybe the Apostle Paul in Ephesians is reflecting on what Jesus prays here in John 17. Or think about Philippians 1.27. Another favorite verse of mine. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he says that, he's not talking about you being worthy so that you can earn the gospel. Only Jesus earned the gospel. He did the work. Us being worthy of the gospel means that now that we have the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and covered by his blood and our sins washed away. Now we need to live lives that are no longer characterized by sin, but by gospel graces so live that way in other words image the glory that you have only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or an absent i may hear of you and here it is that you all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel The first point in the sermon was about what we do individually to grow. We grow in the Word. We grow in Christ's character. But the result is that now we have that unity. Because what happens when you get a group of people together who are all passionate about God's Word, passionate about humility and grace, passionate about Jesus and His Gospel? What happens when you get them together? Unity. And what happens when each person desperately wants... To be more and more like Jesus. To put off sin and put on the ways of Jesus. When you have a community like that. You have a group of people who know that. Well nothing can be exposed about you. That hasn't already been covered by the blood of Jesus. And the forgiveness that I have from Jesus. Is the same forgiveness that I extend to you. And that creates what's called unity. A humble people. A gracious people. A non-judgmental people but a loving people who help each other know and follow Jesus. So here's an implication of when Jesus prays that we would be unified and our unity would reflect what the Trinity is. Right now, each of you individually, all of us, is either an active ingredient for the unity of the church or the disunity of the church. Have you thought about that? There's a reason, sadly, why there's, there's these anecdotal stories of churches biting and devouring each other over the new floors that we've got put in this week, the, the paint on the walls. Churches, in their unsanctified sense, can fall prey to their flesh and bite and devour each other over stupid things beginning with a lack of repentance and lots of pride. And praise God that this church body, almost 100 years old, all of our forebearers in the faith, beginning when this church was planted in a church car and a railroad spur, have sought fit, by God's grace, to stay unified. There has been difficulties, but this church has stayed together. And by God's grace, we will stay together until Jesus brings us home. But for us to have this unity that Jesus prays for, it requires a group of people to agree in faith and fellowship. Faith and fellowship. What does Ecclesiastes tell us? Can two walk together unless they agree? A People band together in faith, meaning we have the same doctrine, same Jesus, same gospel, same understanding of church. We band together the same doctrine and we have the same fellowship, how we will actually live out our faith. That's what it means to be unified. If we have different doctrines and a different way to live out our Christianity, we won't be unified. We need to have the same faith and fellowship. And then we can strive side by side. That's how unity is built. On our part, growing in the word and character, and then having agreeing in faith and fellowship. But what about barriers to unity? I love the title of his book, Respectable Sins. There aren't any respectable sins. He's being ironic. Jerry Bridges writes a book called Respectable Sins, where he takes good aim at sins that don't seem so sinful in the West. Sins that can be entertained or even get free passes in churches. He's got a chapter on each of these. Here's what he says are respectable sins. And respectable sins, because we we know the flashy sins. We know those big spectacular sins. Those are easy to spot. It's the subtle ones that, that, that erode unity in the church. And he says, here are sins that can infiltrate and be entertained by the church in America. Here's the list: ungodliness, anxiety, frustration. Have you thought of frustration as a sin? Discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness rather than service, lack of self-control. How about these two? Impatience and irritability. Anger. Here's a good one. Bitterness. Most people say they, they're not bitter, but when you nurse the grudge and rehearse the hurt, that's sin. So bitterness is when you when you allow feuds to fester. Uh, judgmentalism, that is the armchair quarterback with the log in their eye, who's searching for the speck in yours. Envy, jealousy, sinful speech, the uh, gossip prayer request. The slanderous prayer request, right? Gossip is saying those things that you don't have permission to say to others, but slander is when you're actually saying false things and doing character assassination of someone else. Cutting words and worldliness. And you could add the sin of favoritism, taking sides, the sin of assuming things, laziness and more. Here's why he lists all of those sins. All of those sins, they're like heart disease. And you know what heart disease is? The silent killer. You don't know the disease is there. It lingers. Maybe your blood profile shows it, but it's a silent and slow killer. These types of sins, favoritism, bitterness, irritability, erode the unity of the church. So unity is our growth in the word and applying the word. Unity is agreeing in faith and fellowship. But when we let these things fester in our souls, it doesn't only ruin our own soul and our marriages and our families and our churches, but it ruins our gospel witness. All of those sins are like heart disease. And here's the thing. Each of us is in the middle of our own sanctification. There is the only perfect Christians are currently in glory. And you will never be. We will never be a perfect people until Jesus brings us home. That's, that's God's plan. We're in the middle of our own sanctification. We're not going to be fully glorified until glory. Which means, or does that mean then, if you can take, if every single face in this room is in the middle of our sanctification and we congregate as a group, we're glorified? No, no. That means that we as a church are an imperfect church. There's imperfections with flag Bible and grace and, believe it or not, even our own church family. Which means that it makes us a humble people wanting to see even our own cultural dynamics and things, whatever, about us that that maybe don't help the reputation of Jesus outside these walls. But the Lord knows this. The Lord knows that sin is present He knows that immaturity is present. He knows that foolishness can be present in all of us. But here's the good news. Christ is present. And because Jesus, by his spirit, with his gospel, his grace, and his humility is always present, the Lord is ever at work at us individually and corporately to shape us as a family in more and more unity, which looks more and more like the Trinity. Gospel unity reflects the Trinity. So in in addition to the word and imaging Christ from the first point, I would add what Martin Luther said at the Reformation, all of life is repentance. We need to be a people skilled at repenting when we see our sin because Jesus has already forgiven that sin. And we disarm ourselves of our sins so that we can forgive others and vice versa. Gospel unity reflects life in the Trinity, so guard it with your life. But that's not the end. There's one final step. There's one last set of so that's that leads us to the final conclusion of Jesus. Point number three, gospel unity is a witness to the world, so go in it. Look at the last part of each section so that the world may believe that you sent me. And again, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's review those steps. Step one, grow in the word and the character of Jesus so that we can be unified. And now here, so that we can be on mission. The point is, If we aren't unified, we aren't on mission. And if we aren't unified, we're not doing point one, where we're growing in the word and displaying the character of Christ. The end for which Jesus prays in these verses reveals that gospel unity is a gospel witness. Did you know that? Gospel unity is a gospel witness. Notice in these passages... That there is no mention of one-on-one evangelism. There's other verses for that. But we need to expand our understanding of gospel witness in the world. It says us simply being church. It's having that... Remember the gospel comes with a family photo album? It's looking at the people in the photo album and loving those people... Despite your differences and annoyances. And forgiving them because they think that you're annoying too... And we all love each other in Jesus. And help each other be more like Jesus. That means then that our unity. Which is built on the word and Christ's character. Proves that justification by faith alone in Christ alone is true. Our oneness despite all our differences and all of our difficulties. Where the world cancels one another. The world divorces one another. The world goes to war with one another. We forgive one another. We let love cover a multitude of sins. And we strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. This is what Jesus said. If you you turn back to John 13. In John 13, at the beginning of this upper room, what did Jesus do? He took his outer garments off, put a towel around his waist washed all their feet, including Judas. He hadn't left yet. Then he sat back down and he said, Do you know what I've just done to you? They said yes, but they didn't understand. And he tells them in 1335, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the connection in chapter 17 and chapter 13 is that the world sees our unity... And our unity is simply a display of our towel wasted love for one another. It's a witness to your little children. It's a witness to your unbelieving family and friends. It's a witness to guests among us. It's a witness to our neighbors in this city. The implication of Jesus' words is that evangelism then takes the whole unified, forgiving and repenting church... It takes the whole church to preach and display the whole gospel centered on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What that means is that in our marriages and in our families, we should be able to say this. Look at us. Look Look at us. Our life together proves the gospel actually works. It's actually true. Grace is real. Humility is a good thing. It really is true. You you really should believe it. You should really build your life upon the gospel with us. We're probably going to offend you, but we want to ask you to forgive us and vice versa. When we church, we witness to the gospel of the glory of God. It's abstract, but the way I I think of this is it's it's a cold winter night. And there's a beautiful log cabin. There's a wisp of smoke coming out of the chimney. And in the windows, there's a warm glow coming from them. And there's a person outside, barefoot and broken, shivering and shattered in the snow. And they see this log cabin and they can hear laughter coming. And they can hear singing. Singing. And they can smell the delicious meal being cooked. And they can hear the crackle of the twinkling fire. And, and this person wants to enter that, that room. And that, that, that cabin. And, and on the doormat says. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I, I think that's a picture of what Jesus is saying. is supposed to be like for us. That, that when people um, hear of us. And they know of this church family and other gospel church families that we should be like that log cabin that's inviting when people recognize that they are bankrupt of soul and need a place for salvation and healing. This means that you you should consider bringing your unbelieving friends to church. You should consider throwing a party, a game night, and having church members and neighbors over so that your unbelieving friends can see how Christians interact and more. Jesus implies that our simply being a humble, gracious Christians loving each other with towels on our waist and our life together has a gospel aroma to it. An aroma that speaks of the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Christ and the conquered grave. So church, we must grow in gospel unity. Guard gospel unity And then go in our gospel unity for the sake of the Trinity, the joy of this church, and the salvation of the lost. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you prayed this for us. We thank you, Father, that you have been answering this prayer for 2,000 years. And ask, Lord, for you to continue to answer Jesus' prayer through us and the other gospel churches in this town and beyond. We love you, Lord, and we pray that this would be true of us. In Christ's name, amen.